Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malakian. My usual co-host, James Rundle, he is in Las Vegas attending the SSNC Client Conference and likely running up a robust expense bill. But no worries, as we have a special guest for you all today. We have uh, Gerard Francis, the Global Head of Enterprise Data for Bloomberg. Gerard, thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure, Tony. Very good. So now, earlier today, Bloomberg announced the launch of Enterprise Access Point, an online open data and linked data platform that provides normalized reference pricing, uh, regulatory and historical data sets for Bloomberg data licensed clients. Toward the end, we'll get into the product itself a bit more, and my colleague Max Bowie has written up an article uh, getting into detail uh, about what the product does, what it will mean for, for users. Today, uh, Gerard and I are going to talk more about some of the underlying trends that led to the launch of Enterprise Access Point, and specifically, we're going to look at the challenges firms are facing when it comes to data fragmentation. Before we get to all that, though, Jared, uh, for our listeners, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do at Bloomberg? Uh, sure, Tony. Uh, I look after the data group at Bloomberg, and the data group at Bloomberg really focuses on a few areas. The first area is how do we redistribute primary content to clients? Mm-hmm. As an example, lift up terms and conditions from a prospectus and pass it on. It could be real-time data that an exchange is broadcasting. Mm-hmm. How do you deliver value-added content? So, for example, we can model out the price of a security even if it doesn't trade, and we can estimate liquidity for securities even when there's little information in the market. And then how do we actually deliver it to our clients, whether it's a platform that can handle a lot of fast streaming real-time data with billions of ticks, or whether it's slow data that has to be delivered in a reliable, easy-to-consume format uh, that really has a very stable platform to deliver the data. Uh, so I look around the data business at Bloomberg. Very good. So as I said, you know, toward the end, we'll talk a little bit about the actual platform itself. But am I correct in saying that w- part of the reason why we've gotten here today with some of the challenges around data fragmentation is, you know, first of all, obviously, uh, cloud delivery systems have made it much easier to both obtain and to spread around data throughout the organization. There's there's more and more data flooding into the market that's being consumable. The compute power to be able to dig and analyze into this data is is you know growing and the cost around all that is coming down. Is that kind of a fair starting place to say that that's why data is really kind of starting to spread and weed through the organization, starting to become a little bit um, unwieldy? Uh, Yeah, I I think that's absolutely fair. I think where right now, given data science and given the cloud and given the creation of a lot of data, the volumes of data have ballooned. But what that has really revealed is that the fundamental underpinnings by which firms manage data is not good enough to handle this explosion of data. Mm -hmm. So people really have got to go back to the basics, figure out what are the fundamental principles by which they should run and manage data efficiently so they can deal with this massive surge in volumes and massive needs all around the place, whether they consume it on-prem or in the cloud, Mm -hmm. to deal with that. So it really brings to light a problem that has always existed within the industry. When we talk about data fragmentation, what are we talking about? What are some of the causes that are that are unique to today compared to, because obviously this has always been a problem as long as data has existed. You know, we're just always coming with new forms of the problem. What maybe are some of the root causes that are happening now that you're seeing? 
Sure. So I think if you look at the genesis of data fragmentation, it really boiled down to the issue that people couldn't get all of the data from one place. So if people wanted terms and conditions data, they came to us. If they went to real-time data, they probably went to Thomson Reuters. If they want evaluation data, they probably went to an IDC. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, they had to manually go off and stitch all of this together through data platforms. Mm -hmm. And that really meant people didn't have a common symbology to link the data sets together. They didn't have common field definitions to bring them together. And they created service layers that sat on top of that. Okay. Now it's been exacerbated because you've got more data sets coming into play. You've mm -hmm. got the alternative data sets coming into play and people feel I have normalized my current data. Yeah. How am I really going to go off and fit all of this other alternative data to come and sit on top of it? Sure. Uh, so it's those types of things that are driving the need uh, for really stepping back and saying, what should we do? In mm -hmm. some respects, have we done too much? And is that making our problem worse? Yeah. Uh, can we go back to simplicity and figure out, can we use standard normalized data for the vast majority of our data? and then splice other things on as required. Yeah, sure. uh, the other thing that's really made this dramatically more complicated is the new emphasis on data science and alternative data. Yeah. Because for those types of uh, programs to work, if a quant's going off and trying to run a backtesting algorithm, they very quickly find data errors because computers are a lot better at spotting errors than humans are. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's the computer that's becoming the consumer of the data as opposed to the human being. Yeah. Uh, so all the problems that existed in the past are suddenly exacerbated when you're dealing with computers. Uh, in order to get data and go back and get all your historical data, clean it and normalize it is a massive effort. And if you talk to a lot of quants who focus on data science, they spend up to 80% or even 90% of their time just cleaning data. Sure. Uh, and therefore, that's really the problem you've got to attack is how do you clean it, how do you normalize it, how do you standardize it so that the end user of the data is just getting something that's beautiful, clean, tidy, ready to use. That's where we've got to go to take away some of the underlying problems with data. I think that you might have said this to uh, Max, but is it, is it true that for every $1 spent on capital expenditure um, getting the data, that they spend another 5 to 7 on making it fit for consumption, $5 to $7 fit, fit for consumption? Is that a correct statement? Yes, that is a correct statement. There are various studies that show it. Clearly, it varies by size of firm. If you're a tiny little firm that just consumes a little bit of data, it's yeah. probably not true for you. But if you're a big firm or a medium-sized firm where you consume data from lots of places, it takes a lot of human resource, a lot of technology investment, data management platforms, uh, integration costs, transformation costs, and that's really what contributes to this multiple of five to seven times the cost of the data before people can actually use it. Okay, and forgive me if this is a dumb question. I'll probably ask a few of them over the course of uh, today, right. but uh, I, I was reading um, a, an opinion piece they written about uh, in CXO today, uh, data fragmentation causing cost compliance headaches for CDOs. And at one point you say um, a potential solution can be found by focusing on quality and reliability of data source. As I understand it, firms are increasingly through alternative data that they want to pull in as much data as they can, oftentimes raw data, you know, whether for you know, cellular data or you know, just whatever it may be. So is that, would that still be considered high quality data even if it's very unstructured? Right. Is that still considered quality data or what do you mean when we're talking about quality data and reliability of sure. it as opposed to I just want any sort of data, bring it all to me right now? 
Yeah, I, I would split them up into two different trends. I think the trend of fidelity of data and high quality of data is primarily driven by regulation. Uh, so regulations like BCBS, mm -hmm. uh, some of the other regulatory regimes in the US have actually forced people to go back and look at their underlying data. And when regulators looked at it, they were pretty unhappy. Yeah. Uh, so firms fundamentally have a lot of issues in the underlying quality of the data for running their day-to-day -day operational and risk functions. So when we talk about quality, it's primarily in that area, is how do you go back to data that's critical f for the operations of a firm with fundamentals, risk, operational data sets, and clean them up. When we talk about these other types of data sets, like cellular data, et cetera, mm -hmm. we're talking more about alternative data. Mm -hmm. And these alternative data generally inform data science, where people are trying to figure out how do they create signals, how do they build predictive analytics, how do they create uh, alerts or new things that might be happening by leveraging this alternative body of data. Mm -hmm. So in this case, it's a little less about quality because by nature this data will never be 100% precise, yeah. uh, but it's more about data wrangling. It's how do I actually take this data and turn it into a usable format that my data science or my quant tools can actually understand the data. Okay. And the imperfection gets uh, removed away because you're looking at high volumes of data. Uh, so by default, through statistical approaches, the errors get marginalized. Okay. So in this case, you care less about the specific quality of the individual item. You care more about minimizing the wrangling effort in order for people to use it. Gotcha. So I think they're two parallel things that are coming together. Gotcha. And you also, you, you've spoken a lot about the the consequences of data fragmentation can you give me some examples as to what some of the unique challenges are what some of the unique problems that arise when you're not getting this correct okay that's a, that's a really good question so fragmentation exists in in various forms right so as an example let's take take symbology if you have two people uh, with instruments there is system using an instrument and their uh, operation settlement system using an instrument and they've got different symbology uh, they might actually be referring to different instruments if they don't know it. Okay. So the price they might be used might be different just because they've gone to a different source of the instrument. You can get more complicated. Sometimes you might be trying to use the price at 4 p.m., uh, but one vendor might be giving you to at 4 p.m. GMT, while another uh, vendor is giving you to you <laughs> at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sure. And they don't actually tell you that it's GMT Eastern Standard Time, and you've got to go figure it out, and you've got the wrong time. Okay. Uh, another area that comes when you're using disparate sources is the actual time of update. So one vendor might update their number at 2 p.m., whereas another vendor might update at 3 p.m. So if two systems are relying on the same data but from different sources, they're actually running a risk during the 2 to 3 window because they're really reflecting different points of data. Yeah. So ultimately, uh, when you have data fragmentation, you've got inconsistent APIs, inconsistent field definitions, inconsistent symbology, uh, inconsistent times of update, uh, inconsistent licensing, because one piece of data can be licensed for a particular desk, another group is licensed for a division. Yeah. What happens for a use case that spans both? Do you then go off and drop one data set and use the other? So I think this whole issue of fragmentation has really spun off that entire multiple I thought you talked to you earlier about, about five to seven times. And that's really the cost is how do you normalize it? How do you standardize it? How do you make it feel like one? Okay. That's where the costs come into play. Just by wonder, you know, obviously the, the chief data officer, the CDO role, it's, it's it, over the last few years here in the U.S. and in the U.K., Europe, it's become fairly ubiquitous, especially mm -hmm. at the bigger firms. 
Asia, as I understand it, it's still in the na- in kind of the early stages of development there. Mm-hmm. Is that, first of all, a fair assessment? Yeah, it's a fair. It was a gr- uh, beautiful graphic illustration I had in Paris this year where about uh, three years ago, we started CDO roundtables that Bloomberg would conduct in many cities around the world. Mm-hmm. And we were in Paris three uh, years ago, sitting in a nice restaurant next to the Seine, and there were five people at the table, <laughs> all of them trying to figure, all of them with the title CDO, but nobody knew what their roles <laughs> were and what they had to do. Sure. And uh, this year we were in, in Paris, another nice restaurant, and we had 19 CDOs around the table, all fully engaged, all with their jobs properly defined, and the level of the conversation was light years ahead. And to me, just seeing this year-on-year development in the uh, definition itself, in the number of people performing the role, uh, in the depth with which they understand the business has actually been completely transformative. Just by wonder, you know, just for my own kind of interest, I'm sure maybe some people listening might also wonder, you know, this role, I guess the CDO role before kind of really came into prevalence, you know, these past few years, it was, fell under the remit of really probably the chief information officer. Why would the chief information officer, first of all, now want to kind of cede some of that control of the data? Or am I maybe misunderstanding what the role of the CDO is, maybe? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in different organizations where the CDO role exists might be different. In some organizations, it may exist more in the operational area, in some areas more in the risk area, in other areas more in the technology area. Uh, Because by nature, uh, the CDO function isn't one with direct lines of control. It's more about how you permeate the organization uh, with good data policies, data governance, data controls, and making sure that people right across the organization, be they in operations, be they in technology, be they in risk, are handling the data uh, with the same level of quality and the same level of diligence and the same level of consistency. So you are going to get a bit of variance in where they sit, but what shouldn't vary is what their responsibility is and the fact that they've got to affect organization culture yeah. if they really want to treat data well. And, you know, it's funny because there's a term that gets thrown around a lot, corporate culture. And it's a term that I often loathe because, you know, it's, it's a consultant's term. You know, it's something we come in, tell you how to improve your corporate culture. But when it comes to this this new idea of how to handle all these different data sets and the fragmentation and the cost underlying it, you really do have to improve the culture of how you are acquiring, sourcing, acquiring, and using, disseminating the data. What are maybe some of the best practices that you're seeing uh, as it comes to data fragmentation and improving the corporate culture? Yeah, I I think there are many things you can pick. Uh, Two things that I would pick that are illustrative uh, was one of the things, for instance, in Bloomberg itself, we found were that sometimes a data acquisition we throw away some of the data because we, in order to manage the data better, we reduce the data to what we think clients need. Uh, What does happen over time is clients' needs change and demand evolves. And then we've really got to go back to the original data set to reacquire the data. So I think one good uh, uh, practice is never throw away the data, keep it all, uh, including the raw format, so that as needs change, you can still easily go back to source and refine that. So that's mm-hmm. a simple practice. Another practice that is not well understood is actually defining your data model right uh, and making sure that when people are putting new pieces of data uh, and making them available, they're really figuring out how this fits into the overall meta model for data. Because if they don't, you end up with broken data 
and data that can't really be used and that's reliable. And that's a problem because everybody at the very onset thinks they know how to handle data right mm -hmm. and they go off and do what they want with it without realizing how that particular element fits into the overall structure and the picture. Mm -hmm. So I think focusing on the meta model and getting your data model right and focusing on really making sure you're keeping the raw data with all of its fidelity even though your use case might be more limited initially, is important. And there are other practices that I'm sure CDOs can elaborate on, uh, but those are two in particular that resonate with me. And so when you talk about defining and getting your data model right, is that something that, that there are consistencies amongst organizations, whether you're a tier one bank, um, a, a large pension fund, a hedge fund, asset manager, whatever it is of different sizes, are there best practices that go along with that? Or is it something that you really have to just drill into one-on-one -on -one at your own individual institution and perhaps desk by desk? Uh, yeah, I, I think it varies. I think uh, doing it correctly for a large organization, while you might have excess more talent, is harder just because the complexity of data is a lot more. Uh, I think you have a better chance of getting it right with a more mid-side organization initially because the scope of what you're trying to solve for is reduced. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot depends on have you got the right talent, right? Because if you don't have good data modelers who are strategic by nature, then you end up uh, solving point problems and not the overall problem. And then second, are you empowering these data modelers or data architects, if you may, with the right level of authority to actually enforce it? Because in many organizations, you might have the data architects, but they don't have the real authority to get things done, uh, and therefore you can't actually change the system. Uh, so, uh, so I think there is no standard blueprint one can pick up and just execute. Uh, a lot depends on do you have the right people, and are you empowering the right people with the right level of authority uh, to go off and actually manage the process uh, to get you to a consistent data model. I think there are probably very few firms that will probably tell you that they've got the right data model in place. Okay. I think everybody will probably stay in a state of evolution. Yeah. Are there new methods or techniques around data modeling that you're seeing kind of coming to fruition that are useful, perhaps uh, that are changing um, uh, the way uh, firms are going about this? Well, I think the need of data science has certainly uh, increased the pressure on people to look at their data uh, in graph data formats, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's probably the biggest evolving need. Uh, graph data, while being really good and being able to connect the data and connect the meaning of the data, uh, you don't have the database in databases in place right now to handle that at speed, generically. Mm -hmm. I, I think the technologies are changing, but generically, you don't have the data to handle that in speed. But I think that's the emerging area where people are looking at all the data, trying to put into graph data format, because that's really a better way of describing data for the purposes of data science. Uh, so I, I would say that's probably the biggest change that we've seen in recent years. Okay, and before we look at the uh, enterprise access point offering, where to, to kind of get to that point, to, to, to kind of, where do you feel that, f that enterprises should be directing their investment in terms of data management and data governance? Yeah, I, I think one of the uh, things firms should really do is step back and think about uh, whether the path they're going down is the most efficient way uh, to achieve the end results. Because people might say, you know, I've got to have the best normalization process, I've got to have the best standardization process, I've got to have the best data cache, I've got to have my best internal REST APIs. And yeah, you need all of these things to be the best uh, in order to solve the problem holistically. 
but by the time you actually get there you're so many dollars in uh, and it's going to take so much time that do you really see the benefits of doing all of these things i think the the approach that we advocate is look at all of your vendors uh, try and figure out uh, when we do our surveys of clients the biggest things that come back to us above cost is really people care about quality they care about reliability and they care about comprehensiveness of data mm-hmm. so if you find a vendor that satisfies your issues of comprehensiveness quality uh, and stability and reliability then why don't you just gravitate around the practices that they've established because if you're using them as your primary vendor from an api standpoint from a field definition standpoint from a symbology standpoint uh then all of a sudden you eliminate a lot of the problems that you're trying to solve for sure. by using a multi vendor strategy and then you become very selective of where you deploy your multi vendor strategy right is there a particular area for instance in pricing where you need to have a waterfall where you need a multiple vendor or is there one particular some areas of alternative data where you need multiple vendors so be or credit ratings in multiple vendors use multiple vendors only where you really need them otherwise don't use them for the rest because ultimately the more vendors you use uh, the more you're getting in your own way but protect yourself mm-hmm. make sure your contractual terms your commercial terms give you the requisite protection so you're not overly dependent on this vendor or you at least you got your contractual protections mm-hmm. uh, for the future um, but i think that strategy will take people a lot further a lot faster than them trying to fix all the problems across all the vendors because you're far better fixing a problem at source than fixing a problem downstream. Okay. And obviously as I said before, Max Bowie wrote an article that we will link to um about uh this launch of uh, enterprise access point. But maybe take us through what was the genesis? You know, what, what were the initial conversations that sure. that you were having internally around this? that led to the launch of the product and maybe get a little bit into what the product itself is. Sure. So we saw a bunch of different uh, client themes and feedback that have come across to us over the last 4 or 5 years. Um uh so we kind of took them on board and I'll share what those themes were with you. And then rather than trying to come up with point solutions to the problem, we try to figure out holistically what would solve all the problems. Uh, with one fell swoop mm-hmm. so that really is really the thought process ambitious so, <laughs> exactly and very often we'll fail in that but we we we've, we've gotten a little lucky uh, so i think uh, the first thing was discoverability most clients did not have visibility into what data their firms had already bought that they could use uh, second part of discoverability is people weren't able to easily browse to see what other data sets are available uh, with all of the fidelity that they require to understand the data without dealing with a salesperson. Mm-hmm. So our question was can you just make it easy for clients to see everything they've got right across the world, right? Because they're licensed right across the world, can you give it to them? Second is mm, can you make it so that they can download every single sample of every data we've got in the format in which they can get it so developers can right away decide whether they want that or not? and save everybody a lot of uh, uh time in the entire buying cycle mm-hmm. right so that was one problem we tried to address the second problem we tried to address address uh was uh, how do you deliver the data uh, historically bloomberg as an example has delivered the data in a really good format but it's a bloomberg proprietary format uh, and the consequence of this that every client had to do a bit of development work 
in order to get into the formats they need, whether it's a CSV that's required by some of the more operational people, whether it's a graph data format required by some of the AI people, whether it's a REST API required by the programmers. Yeah. So clients had to do all that work themselves. So we thought about how do you really go off and solve that problem? The third problem we have is standardization. Because very often we deliver primary data, we deliver the data with all of the flaws that come from the onset. As an example, timestamp, sure. right? Uh, we deliver the timestamp of the primary source, didn't necessarily solve the timestamp problem for the client. Um, so then how can we just go off and renormalize all the data so clients are able to look at all the data through one particular lens? Mm -hmm. uh, then can you make the data perfectly rectangular, uh, which means that is the data easily going to flow into my systems without me having to do work? So for instance, if I have a security, then the field for that security should always be populated because if there's a blank space, I don't know whether I've missed something, the data provider hasn't given me data, or is there something else that's been communicated over here? So how do you really get down uh, to truly rectangular data uh, which people can use? Okay. And the next thing is how do you get history? Because for data science, history is a massive problem because the way you really do data science and predictive analytics is by going back in time to see what the world looked like on every day going back many years. And reproducing the world allows you to then figure out how do you predict the world in the future. And people didn't really have access to history going back in time. So these were the many of the problems we were dabbling with as to how do we really uh, go and solve the problem holistically so people just cut all the friction um, between the data vendor itself and how ultimately the applications use the data. Okay. And then so maybe just getting a little bit into the product itself, um, a little bit around what does it mean that it's an online open data, linked data platform? What is the kind of the platform? How does it work maybe a little bit? Sure. Uh, so I think from an open data perspective, the first thing we said is how do you go open? So if you think about the uh, internet, uh, the internet initially began for all of us to use data publicly. Uh, but effectively, the intranet was effectively the means that enabled clients to use all the benefits of the internet, mm -hmm. but use it internally, privately, within their own user group. So we're really doing the same thing with open data. right? We're taking all the open data, which has been designed for the public world, and making open data work for a private audience. Uh, so what are the types of things we're doing over there? Uh, the first thing is we are putting all of our data into hypermedia RESTful APIs, mm -hmm. uh, which means people can use RESTful API to consume data in the various hypermedia formats. Then the kind of formats we are picking are globally standardized formats. Uh, so an example, we are using IT, IETF uh, CSV data frames, and that's really the way in which uh, AI per person would want to go off and consume the data. Uh, we are using W3C standard uh, graph data formats. Uh, we're making sure that all of our data is represented as URIs, which is really the language of the web and things that don't change over time. Uh, so by leveraging, these are really all open data uh, themes and terminologies. We make sure that if our data is available, clients can consume it easily. As an example, if you take a CSV file, Every time you open a CSV file, you've got to do a few clicks before it really works in Excel. Mm -hmm. But all of our CSV will immediately open in Excel without a person having to do anything. Okay. Uh, so that's really the advantage you get uh, from adopting open standards, right? And so it's open data, it's linked to data, it's in the graph data format, it's ready to use via a RESTful API. So whatever people see on the site is exactly what they'll see in their own RESTful API, which means they can directly code up to it and replicate the experience of the site directly in the internal machines. 
And the data that we're talking about that's being used, this is all the data sets that are available uh, for clients through the Bloomberg data license, right? So you couldn't like take like third party alternative data sets or something like that and incorporate it. Is that fair? Uh, Yeah, I I think we are stepping into this Mm -hmm. in the first phase of our first release, which is what we are doing currently, is to release all of our bulk data sets. Right, so our BAL data sets, uh, all of Bloomberg's reference data files, all of our supply chain data, ESG data, uh, BVAL valuation files. So all of our bulk data sets, we are going to make all of them available. To the extent a third party delivers a BAL data set through Bloomberg Data License, we will make that available. So for instance, if Moody's or S&P have their own uh, credit ratings files that they deliver through Data License, that would be available too. So that's phase one. Yeah. And then in phase two, we're going to progress it to address even more third-party data sets that we'll talk about a little later. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine that because one of the things that certainly that we've seen that we've been worrying a lot about is because of this explosion of alternative data, clients aren't necessarily, and they aren't really sure how to get their heads around it, exactly. how to use it. They don't want to put the cost for it. And so you see both banks from City, Morgan Stanley, Goldman trying to figure out how to do it, the exchanges with NASDAQ. To um, to you know big data providers like such as yourself, FactSet, all trying to figure out ways of how can we become kind of your one stop shop. That's kind of the way of the future, but we're not there yet. Is that kind of a? Do you think yeah, that's a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think it's work in progress. Ultimately, I think um, there are various problems you need to solve with alternative data. Mm-hmm. Right, one is can you avoid contracts with every single alternative data vendor? Can you avoid your metering and billing issue with every data vendor? So I think that's par for the course. Whatever data smart you have will need to solve that problem. Sure. But I think there are other more nuanced problems. So for instance, how do you solve the symbology issue? Because the alternative data vendor is not going to go off and tie the data set back to the actual security ID that you might be using. Mm -hmm. So how do you go off and solve that? So I think it gets pretty granular when you solve the problem holistically. I think what we are seeing right now is level one releases where people are trying to solve the problem of contracts and metering or, or uh, invoices, I think there are a lot of level two problems that are yet to be solved. Okay. And am I, who are, are you, for the, this initial release, who do you think are the going to be the prime candidates to take advantage of, of, uh, of, the, of the access point offering? Uh, yeah, I think it's actually a, a very broad swath. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, all of the developers themselves can now come and directly code up against our RESTful API uh, because they can just pick the data down and use it without it having to sit in some intermediate layer and get translated. That's number one. Plus, we're also providing the data right out of the box in all the various formats. People will get it not just in the standard Bloomer format. They'll also get an industry standard CSV. They'll get it in JSON-LD. They'll get it in Turtle. So people can consume the data directly in the format they want, which is fantastic because then you get a lot more of the developers who don't want to deal with translation being able to go off and use the data. The new audience that will open up will be people who directly want data on their desk for enterprise use cases. So if you take take a risk manager, et cetera, they need uh, access to lots of data. Their problem is they don't want to deal with the programming in order to go get the data. Mm-hmm. And now this will solve their problem because they can directly go off and pick up the data and use it. It will solve the problem of quants and people in data science because we are now giving them all of our history going back 10 years because we went back, extracted that from tape, and now we've gone off and put it on the RESTful API 
so people can go off and pull it down. So it'll go off and service their needs. It'll make the, leads, uh, the needs of our existing clients a lot better, uh, solve their problem a lot better, because they don't have to spend as much time integrating data now, mm-hmm. because the whole programming effort is an example for one particular file. If I had to write 50 lines of code before, I can write one line of code now. So their efficiency is going to get a lot bigger. So we think with one swoop, so to speak, we've solved the problem for a very broad swath of clients. There's certainly work to be done, uh, but the first release we think is a very powerful release that from a Bloomberg perspective is the biggest change to data license since we launched the product in 1997. Okay, very good. And as I said, go check out Max Bowie's uh, feature on this on uh, waterstechnology.com. But uh, Gerard, thanks so much for coming down and taking us through kind of some of the challenges that firms are facing around data fragmentation. It's been a pleasure, Tony. Thank you. 